0: And I encourage you to turn to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. The book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. We'll be reading, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 18. We're not to 3 yet. That's next week, right? If you're a guest with us here today, this is how we generally go through um, our studies is a, a book at a time. And we go through just sort of section by section and study out God's Word and, and so this morning, if you're here and uh, you have been struggling at work, if you have been struggling with mistreatment, if you have a boss that makes you dread tomorrow, then today's for you. And I encourage those of you who are retired, you have people who mistreat you too. And you have people that you just don't know how. You can face tomorrow because you gotta face that person. Well, our brother Peter addressed that in the early church in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 through 25. So let's read this together. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He's like, good for you. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, he says it again, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And now, I hope on these following verses that you'll keep in mind the passage which was read by our brother Jeremy Slate moments ago out of Isaiah 53. And we will circle back to Isaiah 53 in a while, but it is woven through these verses. He is connecting you, the suffering servant, with thee suffering servant okay verse 22 he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we seek to understand how we might then know and apply his words to our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, Lord God, we come to you and as our shepherd and as the overseer of our souls, that we entrust ourselves to your care. For there is truly healing in your hand. Your mercy is a fountain which overflows in which in times of struggle, times of suffering and sorrows and mistreatment, Lord God, we can come to you and rest. We can continue on, we can endure, mindful of the one who has before us. And so Lord, may we do that, and may you be lifted up in our doing, that you might be seen and not us, that men and women might be drawn to Jesus, because your servants are truly servants, who desire nothing more than to please their Lord and Savior with their lives no matter the cost. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. A question for you. How do you know if you trust someone? How do you know if you trust someone? There are people that we trust in ways that are pretty incredible. One is you buy this really expensive ticket and you go to the airport. You've never seen the pilot. You don't know the pilot. You only know that someone hired them to be the pilot. And you get on that plane with a few hundred other of your best friends and you entrust yourself to the pilot. He may be a newbie, right? He may have gotten in just enough hours to, and his certification to be a commercial airline pilot. You don't know. Right. But he's still alive and he's been flying or we think he's been been flying. We hope he has. Um, You trust him. Right. You you trust that driver that you get in the car and you sit down and they start driving. Some of you have done that with uh, your children and you've wondered if you should have or not. Right. That side of the road. It seems awfully close when there's a student driver in the driver's seat, okay? I have found myself gripping the seat and, and sort of coming back to the edge, and they're like, Dad, Dad, stop it! So you know that you trust them. Well, how do you really know if you trust them? Okay, take that same pilot and put him in the middle of turbulence in a storm, right? Do you trust them then? Or do you, you want to go up there and look? Say, hey, I just like a little more info. You know, can you tell me? Have you faced this before? Right? Because when you get one of those flights where all of a sudden it's like the bottom drops out and you go, and you, you know, that's that can be scary. Or you you go into rush hour traffic. You said stu- you you trust in that student driver anymore to go through Chicago, right, in rush hour? That's real trust right there. You're not only trusting them, but everybody else around you too. There are ways in which we demonstrate trust that we hardly even think about, right? But in those moments, there's turmoil. In those moments, it's like it's like everything else sort of blacks out, and all you see is what that moment. Like, you feel the turbulence. You see the traffic, and you're like just almost can be panic-stricken. I would guess in a group this size that comes Sunday night that a lot of you feel that way. You think about going to work tomorrow morning and it is just a something in the pit of your stomach that just is bubbling up. And maybe for you it's not just the work itself, maybe it's a person. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a person that, that oversees you. And you just can't hardly think of going and facing them again to face their unkindness, their, their mistreatment, their unfairness, their unjust actions toward you, no matter how hard you've tried. Well, you're not the first. And you won't be the last. And it probably won't be your last day to experience that, sadly to say. But the truth of the matter is, is that we all, experience mistreatment as as sojourners and exiles in a land that is not our home. We look forward to a day when injustice is gone, when we are not mistreated. But that time is not now and we'll face it time and time again. The question is on this journey, do you trust God? Do you trust God? Do you trust him? And the question is, how do you know? How do you know? One way you can know is how do you respond in times of mistreatment? Do you trust him then? Those are those, that turbulence, that's that rush hour feel that all of a sudden the life is coming at you and you just wanna, you just wanna punch somebody. You just wanna, you just wanna yell at somebody. You wanna give them, you wanna give them a piece of your mind. Right? Anything but respectful submission. And yet, that's not what we're called to. Did you catch that in here? That's not our calling. Now, there are a lot of qualifiers we'll talk about today, but that's not what we're going to make. In our passage today, Peter is writing to slaves. And he connects their enduring, respectful submission to their earthly masters with their trust in their heavenly Master, their heavenly Lord, and in His own suffering on their behalf. You see, we'll circle back to this a couple of times, but you're not the first to go there, and you won't be the last. You see, Jesus went first. Jesus went first. And, and we're going to see that we are suffering servants together with Christ. And in that, we can know that He understands us, He cares for us, and that if He can conquer then so can we. That if he is the ultimate last word on it, then we can rest and not have to have the last word on it. You might wonder why Peter didn't just right here address the issue of slavery and say, okay, let's get this once and for all, either him or Paul, one of the two, I don't care who, but one of them, why didn't you just say, hey, slavery's wrong? Right? Slavery's wrong. Let's just end it right now. Let's just be done with it. It's over. Okay? That isn't what we find in the New Testament. As much as we probably all would like for him. But you see, Peter was not writing a treatise for social change. Peter, Peter was writing for gospel advancement, for the strengthening of the church. The gospel was his driving force, just like it was for Paul. However, The gospel brings about change. The gospel does bring about change. In large part, the progress of the church led to the downfall of slavery and of Rome in those early days. God used the gospel to transform the world as they knew it in that day. And later, when slavery continued, and it has continued to this day, The gospel continues to go and transform it. It, William Wilberforce was at the front lines of ending slavery in the United Kingdom. You know what William Wilberforce was? A sound, solid, bold Christian. And that was what drove him to want to see slavery ended. You know who had a big part in ending slavery in America? Christians on the front line standing up. Oh, were there Christians who used passages like this as weapons against slaves? Oh, you bet they did. But you know what? The church continues to advance and to fight for truth. And, and it is used for change. But that isn't what he's doing here. That is not the focus. The Apostle Paul even spoke in 1 Corinthians, spoke hopefully, of those slaves being released, being to gain their freedom. Right? He was a, he was hopeful of that. That was a good thing. So Peter, though, was writing to these elect exiles. We've been through that for the first couple chapters here. These These people aren't in their normal home. They were scattered. They were displaced. And that's likely why Peter chooses not to address, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, masters here. Do you notice that's missing? Paul addresses that later and how to function as a church. Okay? Here, he's addressing people that are scattered. They aren't living in their homes. They're not likely to be masters. You see, Peter was instructing these young churches in how to live in a hostile society. Sound familiar? The people to whom he was writing were not likely to be masters, but instead, very possibly, having been left their homes and land and businesses, gone to another place, they might have had to subject themselves to become servants, to become slaves, at least for a season. And that's a difference. That is an important difference between slavery then and slavery in, in what we saw in the Western world, like the UK and America. In, in their area, it was, in their time, it was more status driven. In other words, you might have been captured as a prisoner of war. You might have been gone into debt. You might have had been born into it. But in each of those cases, it was often possible for you to gain your release. Many young slaves found their release by the age of about 30. That's a long time. That's a long time to live as a slave. But there were not necessarily any guarantees. And the fact of the matter is, you still were considered to have a lower status. Right? We still have that in our workplace, don't we? That you've got those who are the big ones, the big kahuna, the boss, the owner, the whatever, you know, and you've got those like, hey, you do what I say and you do how I, uh, how I tell you to do it. Right? You've got, you've, you've got that status of different, uh, jobs and such. Many slaves, in fact, were doctors. Now, doctors were different then, but they'd be trained to be a doctor and serve their, their master's home, household in, as a doctor. Or teachers and accountants. Um, Some some accountants here are like, "Yeah, I feel like a slave from January one to April fifteenth. It is big time slavery. Um, You chained to your desk, right?" But those were those were respectable jobs. But those were jobs that their masters didn't want to do. They had their own things that they did. Slaves could even own other slaves. They could have their own servants. They would oversee a group of of other slaves. So it was very, very different than what we often picture. Doesn't mean it was pleasant. Doesn't mean it was anything better than still being a slave. Now, H.B. Charles, um, our, uh, pastor, writes this One might be born a slave, prisoners of war became slaves, but in the end, being a slave did not necessarily mean you were doomed to a miserable life. However, You throw in the wrong master, and it's a miserable life. You get the wrong boss, and it becomes a miserable life. You see, while the servant-to-modern-day job correlation may not be direct, there are a lot of similarities in what they experienced and what workers today, what you and I might experience. So, how was a mistreated Christian slave or worker, to respond. Well, we're going to see several things here that I think are helpful, but I would say in a couple of words, enduring trust. You say, wait a minute, I would say respectful submission. That's fruit of enduring trust. That's fruit of enduring trust, and I think we'll see that here. P- see, Peter says, first of all, that the mistreated Christian exile must respectfully submit to unjust masters. See that in our, the beginning of our passage here, in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is, this is not conditional submission. This is not selective submission. The, the author William Harrell wrote, There are limits to the responsibility of believing slaves to submit obediently to their masters. This line is not drawn, however, where man would draw it. You catch that? So there, there are limits, and we'll talk about some of those limits here in a little bit. But the line is not where you and I would, would draw it, right? The verse 13 lists two kinds of masters. You've got the, the good master, which, man, shouldn't every boss be a good boss? I mean, like, the best boss ever, right? You gotta be like just, and I'm sure if you're a boss, I'm sure you always have been and always will be a good boss. You've never mistreated anyone. You've only, you've known only the truth and you've only thought the best of them. And you've only treated them perfectly fairly, right? Well, good, you're you're one of the good ones, right? But then there are the unjust, or your version may even say evil boss. Well, that command is a little more difficult than submitting to the good boss, right? The one that you love and enjoy. In 1 Peter 3.17, in fact, Peter takes it a little bit further. For it's better to suffer for doing good... If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. You see, we are called to even, to especially, it's even better, he says, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That's, there's a whole lot, we're not even going to unpack with that one, but the bottom line is, that's a hard one to digest. To think that I go to work tomorrow, you go to work tomorrow, And in God's eyes, it might be better that you suffer. Well, that's not all that said. You saw the rest of it. Then for doing, suffer for doing evil. In other words, you as a believer are not to go into the workplace and to be lazy, to be inconsiderate, unkind, haphazard. Because if you are, kids, listen, if you work like that, you deserve you deserve some suffering. You need to grow up. You need to work as unto the Lord, not pleasing man, but pleasing the Lord. And he says, so it's better. It's better to, to, to suffer doing good than to do a halfway job and to suffer for that evil. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes you do good and it is just painful mistreatment. That word unjust is a word that means bent. Have you ever had a bent boss? You guys are like he's like I'm not I'm not gonna give it up. Most of us at one time, right? Yeah, thank you. We have one person in this entire place. Okay, the rest of you are dismissed. Aaron and I will have a conversation, right? Yeah, you probably had a boss who was a little bent, right? He didn't he didn't treat you well. He didn't treat you straight and true, okay? You and you are called then to be subject to them. It is. It is the character of the master that we're addressing here. And his character is not an excuse to not obey. Today, we have options that the recipients of this letter didn't have. If your boss stinks, oh, you can resign. We just had the great resignation, right, over the last year or so. The great resignation where more people resigned from their jobs to go do who knows what, you know. And they stepped away. But these people didn't have that option. They were slaves. And, and yet, you, it might, it's not so easy, is it? Because, yeah, you can say that you can do that, but it's a little harder. You gotta have a job. You gotta pay for that mortgage. You gotta pay for transportation. You gotta pay for food. You gotta pay for all these different things. And so you feel like you're stuck. You feel like you're stuck. But, you can also report an illegal, immoral, or unethical boss, right? But it might get harder for you. It might get more difficult for you. But if it's not God's will, as you understand that boss and understand the law, and you can technically step away. And many of you have. Many of you have stepped away from difficult situations, but let's be clear on this. Unjust does not mean that you just don't like the job or the way the boss runs things. That's especially if they own the business, their business. Young people, again, I address you. You go work for somebody and they run their business a certain way and they're not really kind and gentle, but they're a little more demanding. They're, hey, that's their business, right? You need to work for them according to just being a good hard worker. Some of us think that we got to have the perfect job. It's got to be all just nice and, and comfortable and, and don't work me too hard or too long. Man, you should have worked for my dad. My dad found the hardest, dirtiest, longest jobs and said, go do it. Right? And do it until you're done and it's done right. And and you can say, well, that's not fair. He should have given you more. We didn't take breaks. Should have reported him to OSHA. Right. He didn't. He thought taking a break at midway through the morning, midway through the afternoon was one of the dumbest things you could do. That's when you needed to be working. Right. Take a break at lunch. Good 30 minutes to eat your lunch. That's sufficient on an especially hot day. We might even take 30 minute break to you know a little siesta afterwards to let the food settle before you crawl back up on the roof and do a little more shingling in the heat. Right. It's not about a difficult situation. That's more your problem than your boss's problem. At the same time, unjust treatment does not mean, we're not talking here about illegal treatment necessarily. Because illegal treatment, we're not going to stand up here and say, you know what? You just take it. It's illegal. They're doing illegal things to you. You just take it. Or that they're asking you to do illegal things. You just do it. You submit That's not. I mean, we go to the other parts of Scripture and we can apply those things and find that that's not what's being said here. Right. If you're being asked to do illegal things, you need to address it, whether it's reporting it to higher ups or to the law or whatever you, you and if you're being asked to do it, you just need to get out. You can't do it. My brother had to step away from a job and took, and because of a non-compete clause, went and worked construction for a year because they were asking him to lie, as he was selling something. He said, "I can't do it." And they said, "Then you're fired." And they said, "Okay," and went and worked construction for a year. Finally, got back into that the, the financial world. But you you must understand that's not what we're saying. That's not what Peter's saying. So. There is another consideration, though, that just because something's culturally legal does not mean that you're bound to disobey God in order to obey one's boss or master. So this is, I'm, I know there's a lot of qualifications. I'm getting through this so that we can, we, hopefully it answers a lot of those questions that are like, for some of you, that are, are like this trigger in your mind, like, okay, but, okay, but, we answer a few of those so you know what we're not saying. And that you can rest and then accept the word of God. And how then shall we live? If it's if it's culturally acceptable and even the law of the land says it's legal. And your boss says this is how we're going to do it. And it's legal. It's according to the law. You know, you don't have to obey. And you can't obey as a believer if it's against God's law. But I thought he said that you are to submit respectfully to those... Yes, but we take the rest of Scripture and apply it here as well. So there are many, many, many considerations, but at the heart of the response of the Christian slave or worker is this idea of enduring mistreatment as a God-focused, a God-focused responsibility with intentionality, with consciousness. You see, the mistreated Christian exile and sojourner must consciously choose the pleasure of God. Listen to this. For it is a gracious thing. You, The idea there is that you have God's favor, right? When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. A fair question might be, the question I immediately ask as I read it, well, if I had the favor of God, if I had the graciousness of God, would I not be absent of suffering? That's what I would think if I was if I was trying to play God. Like, well, if I have God's graciousness, if I have his favor, then my job's going to be wonderful and I'll always have a good boss. That's, we're going to find, not the case. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This, again, is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is not talking about getting called on the carpet again for shoddy workmanship, but it is what this is what that would be deserved, expected. But what verse 20 is saying, rather, speaking of unjust treatment by one's master or boss, and to consciously, intentionally respond in light of who God is, in terms of his glory, his pleasure, his will, and his promises. And that, friends, is faith. That's faith. When we look at who he is and what he has done and what he promises to do and his commands and we obey it, that is by faith acting. And Hebrews 11 tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. But living by faith magnifies God and and ultimately pleases him. You have his favor. So let me get this straight. If I have his favor and I'm there with the boss and I'm, I'm enduring respectfully and submitting respectfully, then I have his favor and that means that I'm going to have a breakthrough. I'm going to have, I'm going to experience my Joseph experience, right? For sure. I'm going to be able to be second in command. I'm going to be, matter of fact, I'm going to be one of the top dogs. Not necessarily. Because if that were true, then every Christian who's ever endured would sometime be at the top of the heap. And some ended up on top of a fire heap being burned for their faith. So that's not what this is saying. It's not saying, oh, work hard and one day you'll get recognized for it and you'll have great achievement. Oh, you will be faithful in the little things, right? But it may not be in this life. And you've got to be convinced of that, convicted of that. You've got to be trusting God in that by faith. And folks, this this requires intentionality, it it requires consciousness, right? Being aware of it, it's not about the finances, a better situation, or the thing you visualize in your dream, you accomplishing it. This isn't a self-help thing. This is God giving you the greatest favor. And what is the greatest favor God gives? It is Himself. It is Himself. And in the midst of suffering is where He often most gives you the greatest revealing closeness, intimacy of Himself. And so, friend, that's hard. That When you get to that and go, oh, so this this may mean that I may have a lifetime of enduring really stinky bosses. Oh, but look what you get in the end. You get more of God. And if you're a believer... And you have trusted in Christ and, and what you have by salvation, you have Christ. Well, what more could you want than more of your Savior? So in those moments of mistreatment, God desires to reveal himself as infinitely, perfectly trustworthy. And the question was, is, in the midst of that turbulence, as the world comes rushing at you, will you trust him? delighting to do His will because you trust that it is good and right no matter how bad your boss is. Second Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, Share in suffering as a good, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled with civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's the theme verses for our new Rest and Refit uh, Veterans Ministry. And, and, and I love that verse. I love it because it, it gives clarity. It gives focus, right? The world is happening around me. The circumstances may be miserable, but I have one person that I aim to please, and that is the one who has called me. I'm, he is the one who enlisted me, and I strive to please him. We make it our aim to please our master, and we please him when we walk the path that he's already been down. We've all had parents or coaches, hey, do as I say, not as I do. Just do it. And we watch them and we go, that, that didn't, he's not doing it. She's not doing it. Why do I need to do it? And that, and I understand, I've not been in the military, been around a little bit of military people, but I understand some of that happens in the military. Like you do what I say and no questions. You just go do it regardless of what that person is doing. But with our master, King Jesus, he's already been down this path. And this is the heart of this passage. If you're thinking, okay, he's telling me to do something that he just doesn't get. And maybe I don't. I very well may not even begin to understand how bad your situation is. I don't have to. I don't have to. Because there's one who does. This is a well-worn, well-traveled path that not only many Christians have been down, but that our Lord and Savior, the mistreated Christian exile and sojourner travels a well-worn path. He says, verse 21, for this to you, for this you've been called. And look at the next word. Because. Because. Why have you, why are you expected to live this way? Why are you expected to endure suffering? Because Jesus, because Jesus what? Because Jesus also suffered, and get this, for you. You're the cause of it. Wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not just. Exactly. Exactly. So Jesus suffered unjustly on your account, leaving you an example so that you might if called upon, suffer unjustly on the account of someone else. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That word translated to follow is the word accompany. I like that word better. That's pretty cool. This idea that I'm not just called to follow Jesus at a distance. I'm called to follow in his steps. I'm I'm supposed to accompany him on that journey, which means if I'm accompanying him, what is he doing? He's accompanying me. I'm, I'm willingly falling in behind the suffering servant to live as a suffering servant. But because I am, I'm with him and he's with me. That's the picture, that in the midst of my master, my boss, treating me unjustly, that Jesus has been there before me and he's in it with me. And if I believe that, if I trust that, back to that word trust, then it changes how I think about it. Because he's not only with me now, I am in the company of Christ through the end. And there is a promise that comes with that. Christianity is not an escapist movement. Christianity is about following Christ no matter the cost, no matter where it takes us, right? Mark eight thirty-four, thirty-five 35 may have been something that Peter had in his mind, and it says, in calling to the crowd, in calling the crowd to him with the disciples, Jesus said to them, "If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. If your understanding of Christ does not radically transform your view of how you do work, of how you respond to mistreatment, then you're not understanding Christ as you should. When Jesus said, come follow me, his calling was complete. No matter how much this doesn't sound like being a conqueror, Following Christ, the conqueror, will lead to ultimate victory. Jesus, the suffering servant, calls his disciples to be suffering servants with him. So Peter now, in this passage, draws on the past of these Jewish readers who likely were intimately aware of Isaiah 53. They would have known that passage. It was a, it was a passage they would, they would quote and they would have memorized from the time they were children. And he draws on that and weaves into this letter many passages, many references to it. So if you turn to the back of your handout, I want to just direct your attention to a number of these things that you will see here. In verse 22 of 1 of, of Peter 2, he quotes Isaiah 53.9. Where there is no deceit in his mouth, right? In verse twenty-three, it has a background in fifty-three verse seven. So look at verse seven there, where you see it says he was he had no threats in retaliation. Well, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In verse twenty-four, it draws upon a number of passages. In fifty-three twelve, he he talks about he bore the sin of many. In 53.5, by his wounds we are healed. In 53.11, to be accounted righteous. In verse 25, it talks about, we all like sheep have gone astray. What is he doing here? He's doing two things. He's doing one, he's painting the example. He, he said, this example has gone before you. You think you've suffered? Look at how he suffered. You think your mistreatment is unjust? Oh, you're the cause of his unjust treatment, right? But he also does something more by the end of it. Do you see how it turns? We're gonna see there at the end that he now builds into it care. He builds an intimacy. He builds a, he moves into this shepherd and overseer. You see, it's, it's more than this example. It's a, connecting. Christ also suffered for you. You're a fellow sufferer with Christ now. When you've come to Christ now, it's not just, yes, he suffered for me and I've received salvation. Now he says to you that you can share in the fellowship of my suffering. You can understand, first of all, what it means to be unjustly treated. But more than that, you have the privilege and opportunity to demonstrate to that boss, to that master, mercy and kindness. To not respond in a way that the world would expect. You see, here's how Jesus responded. Jesus' response to suffering demonstrated his limitless trust in the Father. Verse 23, it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He suffered, he did not threaten, but listen to this, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Taken literally, Jesus was surrendering himself in an ongoing manner. He surrendered and continued to surrender himself to the end, to the Father. Why? Not just blindly, not just not in any way ignorantly, but he did it very consciously and intentionally and said, I know my Father. I know what the outcome is going to be. I know the Father better than anyone, and I trust Him completely. I will go to the cross, and I will trust His will. And, he, and, and so it was an, a limitless trust. He trusted the Father. He didn't sin. He didn't lie to lessen mistreatment. He didn't, revi- in other words, just say what, what the, the people wanted Him to say. He refused to. In fact, he would refuse to even speak if necessary. He did not revile or threaten those who were mistreating. Rather, he rather to die unjustly than to fail to trust the Father to make things right in the end. Question. Will you trust the Father? Will I trust the Father as the righteous judge? Jesus did, and that's what we're called to do. And it's important to understand this because, guess what? The next couple weeks are gonna have some likewises in them. In other words, it's gonna say likewise wives, likewise husbands, likewise, in the same manner, in the same focus, with your eyes fixed on God, with your eyes fixed on the example of Christ, respond in this way. Like Christ, our responses are to be rooted in the character and nature of Jesus Christ, not as just responses to, and reactions to mistreatment of others. How do I know that? Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Friends, if those are the things you're feeling towards your boss and exhibiting towards your boss, Paul says, put them away. Okay, well, I'll just put them away. I'll just get really tough and I'll just take it. That's not what it says. Because look what's next. It says, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender hearted and forgiving one another. And it doesn't stop there. Those, so I just need to try harder and, and forgive people and be nice to them. And, and yeah, that, that's enough. No. Where is it rooted? Where does it come from? What does it arise out of? It arises out of as God in Christ forgave you. Just like Jesus had his eyes set for the Father, the righteous judge, we have our eyes set on Jesus, the one who has forgiven us, though he suffered in our place unjustly on our account. And to be able to endure in this way requires a total commitment to trusting the Lord. And a confidence that he is the one who will vindicate justice and judgment in the end. And he is the one who is present and enables such enduring. See, Jesus' endurance of suffering flowed out of a life-giving fountain of mercy. I love his hand of mercy is covering all, right? That's what we find here is that in the midst of our suffering, his mercy. It says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness by his wounds. You may be healed. I won't revisit this ground because we've already talked a lot about it. But he did this for us. That is mercy. That's mercy. That's what we're called. We're we're, we're to be mercy people. People who are exhibiting mercy. And what is mercy if it's not someone's done us wrong. And we're treating them in a way that they don't deserve to be treated. That's what mercy is. Mercy isn't, oh, I've got a good boss and I'm treating him really nice. That's not mercy. That's just being nice to someone who's nice to you. Big whoop. Right? You've heard it said, love your neighbor as yourself. But I say to you, do good to them. To love your neighbor, to do good to them and to pray for them. That sounds like what Peter's saying here. Right? That's radical trust in God. But Jesus also experienced suffering that we might intimately experience his care. We, he not only experienced suffering to that we might have forgiveness, but that forgiveness led the pathway to where we might have intimate care from him and from the Father. 1 Peter 2.25, For you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Isaiah 53, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, As believers, we've returned to the shepherd and overseers of our souls. How did we do that? He took our sins. We found forgiveness that then opened the way that we might come to the Father, that we might know this intimate experience of of fellowship with the Father. And through our union with Christ, He bore our sins. He took our shame. He took our suffering. And by entrusting ourselves to God, In the midst of mistreatment, we grow in our relationship with him. In the midst of mistreatment, we grow in our relationship with him because we are fellowshipping in our actions of mercy. As we show mercy, as the mercy receiving people, we are like the Father is saying, yes, yeah, that's it. They get it. That that's when mercy is most needed. That's when mercy is needed. See, Jesus, if he would do that, as if the shepherd would give his life for the sheep, don't you think that he will give all that the sheep needs to endure to the end? Romans 8 tells us he does. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give, graciously give us all things? And so the, the 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 conclusion is this. Focus on Christ with a mindfulness of God's holy justice. God will take care of that in the end. Is that to mean that you should be praying, God, get him. Come on now. Get my boss. Take him out. Take her out. Right? No. You're to focus on respectful submission entrusting yourself consciously to God you're not a righteous judge he is entrust that part to him right in so doing you imitate our lord in hebrews 12:1 and 2 it says therefore since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance The race with the, the race that is set before us. Whatever your race is. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Why? For us. Despising the shame. Whose shame? Ours. And is now seated at the right hand of God. Oh, that was a switch. That was a turnaround. Right? But the Holy Father knew the truth. And and he was elevated to a place above every name, right? We read in Philippians chapter 3. You see two words in there I want to just sort of end with. Because he was the founder and he was the perfecter of our faith. He is the basis for our faith. Our faith is established on what he has said, has done right? What he did in the past is our foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. But he's also the perfecter. That's something that isn't in the past, but something that is now and moving forward. So how is he the perfecter of our faith in the midst of this suffering? Our faith is perfecting as we trust him and his promises for our lives today and our future tomorrow. So as you face tomorrow, as you face that employer, that boss, that person who mistreats you, and you look to the future, you look to Christ and and His justice, you're then freed to go, okay, what's my job with this person? Okay, I'm to pray for them, I'm to do good to them, and I'm to love them. That's mercy. Wouldn't it be amazing if instead of so quickly just... every time we're wronged as Christians... If instead we said, oh, Lord, I want to I talk to you about this person here. Lord, help me love them. Show me, Lord, how I should love them. Show me, Lord, how to do good to them. Truly good. Not just good in my definition, but what is truly good to them. And the truest good is that they might know the gospel. Because that's your greatest good. is that you would know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, this conversation today is probably so foreign and almost ignorant. Like, hey, just just move on. Leave that job, just move on. No, God has us on a mission. And our mission is the gospel to share the hope and love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And that's our priority. And if God has placed you in that place, whether it's for a season or for a lifetime, No matter how hard it is, he's trustworthy. He will take care of it in the end and he will take care of you on the journey. And that's our prayer for you today, that you'll trust him to do just that. To care for you today and take care of it in the end. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we we come to you now and we just ask that you would graciously, you would graciously show yourself strong in and through our lives. Lord, we, we ask that you'd help us to endure well, to be a mercy people, to be faithful, to be respectful, to be submissive in the way that honors the Lord Jesus, in a way that is mindful of your promises, not just trying harder, but trusting you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.